Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we launched during the work from home period with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're really trying to do during these SALT Talks is replicate the experience that we provide at our global SALT conferences, which we have an annual conference in the United States an annual international conference, most recently that was held in Abu Dhabi, and we're looking forward to doing likely a virtual Abu Dhabi conference uh, in early 2021. But what we're really trying to do is provide a window into the minds of subject matter experts for our audience, as well as to provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome the fourth episode of our Voice of Cannabis series where we bring together leaders and innovators from the front lines of the cannabis industry to talk cannabis politics, cannabis regulation, and the business of cannabis. Today's episode is called The State of Play Before Election Day, and it's in partnership with Fourth Wall Advisory, which is a strategic marketing advisory firm. A special welcome to our newest panelist today, uh, Melissa Kuypers-Blake, who's a leading lobbyist and seasoned political strategist focusing on the field of cannabis. Uh, hosting today's talk, again, is Jason Wilson, who's a principal at Fourth Wall Advisory and a cannabis banking expert. With more than 15 years of experience in the asset management, finance, and structured product space, Jason has a track record of bringing hard-to-access asset classes to market. He's been working in connection with the legal cannabis industry for the past decade. And with that, I'll turn it over to Jason for the interview. Thanks, John. Re really appreciate it and great to be here for our final episode. You know, obviously, lots going on. We go back to the VP debate. And, you know, I think when Senator Harris mentioned that if the Democrats win, uh, you know, cannabis will be decriminalized or legalized. And man, did we ever see the, the, the markets move and the chatter start based on, on those comments? So, you know, here we are a week to go uh, to the big election. A lot, at, lot at stake. There could be you know, several scenarios, several outcomes, so much going on. Yeah, Eric, why don't you kind of give us a state of play? Where, where, you know, what, what's the chatter? Where are the expectations? Where do you see things going with a, a week to go to the election? Terrific. Well, thank you, Jason, and thanks again uh, to Salt uh, and the team for for having us back on for this discussion. Um, here we are, a week out. Uh, it always seemed like people were saying it's a long ways away. It's too early to start to think about this. We're, we're now seven days out. Uh, we're within uh, within striking distance of this. And the reality is we've already been in election month. This is the first election in American history where more people will have voted prior to election day than vote on, on election day. And the numbers that we're seeing are astronomical. 66 million people have already voted. 25% of them did not vote in 2016. And in, in states like Texas, um, that's 84 percent of the 2016 vote has already voted. Uh, in Georgia, 71 percent. We're seeing uh, increased turnout among uh, blacks, Latinos and, and, and young voters. So people are getting to the polls uh, early. There's a, a lot of reasons for that. A lot of it's COVID related and safety related. The numbers so far have, have leaned heavily Democratic. A lot of that is due to, um, I think, voter enthusiasm, but also President Trump's uh, comments about, about mail-in voting. Mail-in voting constitutes about two-thirds of the votes so far, and uh, in-person voting uh, constitutes one-third. So this could be the largest turnout we've seen, perhaps in American history as a percentage, certainly the largest in terms of raw numbers, and undoubtedly the largest in, a, in, in, a, in 100 years. So where are we? 
Right now, we it's it's Joe Biden's general election to lose. He has had a very durable, sturdy lead for the entirety of the summer, all through the conventions, into September, through October and any October surprises. And uh, here we are a, a week out and he finds himself up by nine points, uh, almost 10 points nationwide in the poll of polls. The numbers I'm going to use are, are the um, uh, Real Clear Politics 538 poll of polls. So it's a polling average. So he's up nine to 10 points. Hillary Clinton at this point was only up five. So that differential alone could, could, could be the delta. But where you, as we know, the Electoral College is, is how we judge who's won and lost. And, and the, um, uh, even though we may see a differential of four or maybe even five million uh, votes in favor of Joe Biden, the Electoral College still could, will, will determine this. So we look at where he is in the swing states. Michigan, he's up by eight. Biden is up by seven in Wisconsin. Florida, two. Uh, one, Iowa, Pennsylvania, five. Arizona, North Carolina, and Georgia up by three, two, and one. Uh, it, Trump is not out of the margin of error in any of the swing states, and he's only up in Texas and in, 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 in Ohio. So what Joe Biden has done has grown the map forcing the Trump team on the defensive nationwide and, and forcing them to fight battles uh, that they didn't expect to fight in places like Georgia and Texas, expend money that they don't have. The, the Biden advantage is two, if not three to one going into these final race uh, weeks. And, um, and and this is going to have an impact on down ballots. Uh, uh, down ballot races. So the Democrats, it's a non-zero chance that Trump could win. Um, we've seen that in 2016, but he does not have magic powers. The This is a very different election than 2016. And it looks right now like Joe Biden is going to win uh, by over 300 electoral college votes. Hey, Patrick, I mean, you're, you're in the Midwest. We're talking about battleground states. And we also have the Senate to play here. I mean, that could flip. Like, wh where do you Where do you see this coming on the margins? Yeah, so I share, uh, you know, an optimism, uh, like Eric expressed, uh, that the vice president is in a strong position, but mine is a very cautious optimism. Um, and part of that is sort of living out more in the middle of the country. Um, you know, my, my in-laws and family are in Michigan. We spend a lot of time in Indiana uh, and other states in the Rust Belt. And there is just a very different America uh, in a lot of parts of the country than what you see in Washington, D.C., New York, San Francisco, and other large urban areas. Um, the battleground states are really close, and uh, I think there has to be accounted for a percentage of people that are going to vote for President Trump that don't tell pollsters that they're going to or don't even answer uh, you know, calls when, when they get them from pollsters. I would also look at, at history as a guide. You know, one thing we did in 2016, which is why I think a lot of us got uh, the election wrong, is we didn't think that it mattered that you had sort of an insurgent outsider running against, uh, you know, someone going for a third term, because we just thought that the fact that Donald Trump was Donald Trump was, was the offsetting factor. And really, all of the factors pointed to a Republican president having a really good chance in 2016. We just didn't think that it could be Trump. So let's look at recent history on incumbents who are defeated when seeking a second term. In the cases of both George H.W. Bush in 1992 and Jimmy Carter in 1980, you had incumbent presidents uh, dealing with crises at home and abroad that suffered very, very contentious primaries uh, within their own party in seeking the nomination for a second term. 
And you had disruptive forces within the base that there to be sort of a lack of support among core constituencies. I don't see any of that right now with Donald Trump. I mean, facing a crisis uh, with this pandemic and, and the subsequent recession, but his base is firmly behind him. They were behind him in the primary and the Republican party is as enthusiastic and energized about him as any political party has ever been about it in, in my lifetime and probably my parents' lifetime. So I would make note of that. Um, you know, and I would also just point out the obvious point. We are an evenly divided country. We're a very divided country. And I think you're gonna see turnout that is very enthusiastic on both sides because both sides feel like there's just a lot at stake for the country and, and for people's sort of way of life and what they value and find important. On the Senate races, which you mentioned, Jason, that's really important. I would point to an often repeated stat from 2016 but no Senate candidate in 2016 won a state that the presidential nominee of their party didn't win. We just don't see a lot of ticket splitting anymore. And as I look at the Senate map, I think that continues to make the Democrats' path to the majority very challenging. We'll have to see what the early vote numbers look like uh, as we get close to the election and, and kind of when all the votes come in. But I would say Biden is a favorite but it is very tenuous in the, in the same path that was available to President Trump four years ago remains available to him today. Uh, and, and I think that's where things stand. Uh, Jason. Oh, sorry, go ahead, David. Sorry, can I just jump in here with a quick comment and, uh, and also a question for either Eric or, or Patrick, because I think uh, their, their comments, both of them are spot on. Um, first of all, I just want to say for the record that it is stunning to me that Joe Biden is in Georgia this week campaigning and that that state is actually in play. A Democrat has not won that state since 1992. Uh, and I think Patrick alluded to that earlier. And that's something to keep a very close eye on in addition to some of the others that are running neck and neck. The second is that um, there's been a lot of chatter about the staggering amounts of money that the uh, Biden campaign has raised. And it is indeed record setting and staggering. The most important things in my mind though, uh, in terms of the money is not the ad buys, but rather the paid GOTB and also the paid legal, which there are hundreds of legal challenges across the country already. We know that this could potentially drag out until the, that second week of December, um, but they have actually the legal structure and pay in place. These are not volunteers, these are paid professionals. Uh, so I think that actually is gonna have a big impact. Uh, and I also feel like the paid GOTV is something that's not getting a lot of chatter, but is really critically important. But one thing that I wanted to raise though, is that also this week, the one pollster from 16 that got it right suggested that this time around, it's actually a 5% kind of quiet Trump uh, favoritism, right? So everything that we're seeing should be minus five or plus five for uh, President Trump. I'm just curious, um, Eric, Patrick, if either one of you could comment on that and if you think that that's actually real uh, and how that could potentially impact uh, next week. Well, I, I would say any one poll, you have to look at the biases of the poll and the biases of, of, of the pollster, which is, I think, why it's important to look at the averages and where it's heading and where the polls have been breaking. And the polls have been breaking not toward the, the, the incumbent, which is you know normal in elections, 
The challenger is where uh, the undecideds break at the last minute. The polls are breaking to Biden. And Donald Trump doesn't have the advantage of, A, running against Hillary Clinton, who was uh, extraordinarily unpopular. And he also doesn't have the, the uh, uh, advantage of running as, as, as an outsider. We've had five years to get to know him. And he has, he's the only president incumbent in polling history who's never hit 50% approval. Right now, his approval is at 43%. His disapproval is 53%, more than half of the Americans disapprove of the job he's doing, and that's significant. Conversely, Joe Biden is over 50%. He's up by, by nine points. He's at, he's at 51, 52, 53 in, the, in, in these polls. And he's over 50 points uh, percentage points in key battleground south state, states, which Hillary never was. That doesn't mean he's ahead. That means he's winning those states. Yeah, I would agree with that. The polling certainly looks a little bit better for Biden right now. I think we're going to need to see over the weekend as things tend to tighten uh, in in the last week leading up to the election what sort of the real clear politics average looks like. The, you know, the aggregate of all polls. But David, your point on spend the money is incredibly important. You and I both worked for for red state Democrats in a previous life, and you know there is only so much you can do in some of these states to stay competitive. For at the Senate level, uh, you know, during a presidential year, and so I think how resources dedicated to GOTV and to potential legal challenges, you've got like eight to ten races that are all within the margin of error. You are going to have some really razor thin Senate results, and who ultimately can win and prevail in legal challenges there could ultimately tip the balance to either the Democrats or the Republicans. I would just add one more thing on the on the silent Trump vote and what percentage that is. You know. I don't know, and I certainly found uh, the the comments you uh, mentioned very interesting as I listened to them as well. I would point out, you know, where my family lives is just sort of a general suburban type area. Think, you know, we're in the Chicago suburbs, but think Philadelphia suburbs, Milwaukee suburbs, uh, greater suburbs. Um, we will take a walk around our our county, and there are a lot of Joe Biden signs, and this is. Page County, this used to be sort of ground zero for Republican support. There are almost no Trump signs, but there are a lot of Republican congressional signs. There are a lot of Republican local elected official signs. And I don't think those people are voting for Joe Biden. I just don't. I just think that they don't want to put a Trump sign in their yard for fear of being shamed by their neighbors or whatever else. And so I do think there is, because of our politics, because of Facebook and how tribal everything has become, there are a lot of people that are going to vote for Donald Trump that people just don't really factor in. And I think that will be reflected in the overall results next week. I don't necessarily think it's going to be enough to tip the election, but if it is, I'm sure I will be disappointed, but not surprised. Yeah. Jason, just to finish my thought here. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Melissa, but I'll just add quickly before Melissa jumps in. Uh, I, in my mind, this is a pure toss up because of the, the silent Trump vote. Um, and I appreciate uh, my good friend, Mr. Huey's enthusiasm. But I see this, again, if you look at the battleground states, as just a pure toss-up. Melissa, please. Yeah, thanks, David. And I would agree with that. Um, you know, I've worked in Republican politics since 1996, starting in Florida and throughout the country. And there's been some very interesting dynamics, though, over the last few weeks with general support for Trump coming from places that are not traditional, including the Bernie voters. And if you talk to a Bernie voter, they don't have any interest in supporting Joe Biden. And they're not going to sit home either. And I had a conversation with an old boss uh, a couple weeks ago who said his daughter, who's 17, can't even vote, is, is a Bernie supporter and has got a Trump sign in her car and is doing everything she can to get Trump elected. Um, so there's these pockets, right, throughout the country where 
You look at the coast and I think you can determine where they're going to end up. But you do look at the middle of the country. I'm living in Denver. And yes, Denver, Boulder, Metro are very pro-Biden. But when you, the minute you leave that uh, city center, you find a lot of Trump signs. And not, not only do you see that, you see a lot of Trump flags and parades and this passion. And I've, so, I've said to many clients over the last couple of days, this election is a lot about passion for Trump. You either don't like Trump by a lot or you really like Trump by a lot. The energy is not around Biden. Yeah, I, I, it, it, it's fascinating, right? You said there's there's this whole lightning rod and, and there's this passion and, and it's 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 an incredible election experience. But you know, there's 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 two crises going on in the country right now. I mean, outside of you know the whole Trump issue, look at the fact that we have obviously a social justice crisis right before our eyes. It's been 2020 has been a horrible year to remind us of all of that, and then layer on COVID on top of that. And, you know, I, we've been hearing a lot of chatter as how cannabis, tax revenues, job growth, you know, we have a super majority of Americans living in states that have already legalized. Uh, you know, we saw some progression with the farm bill passing and, and you know, hemp related products, but we still have hiccups at the, at the federal level. So, Melissa, how is that coming into play? Are, are we, obviously, there's, there's this divisiveness over whether Trump's president again or not, but is, is, Cannabis, is there any electability to that as, as well? How is that uh, affecting the, the voters' minds? Thanks, Jason. It's a great question. And, you know, it's funny. Cannabis has been legal since 1996 in California, uh, the first medical marijuana state. So fast forward to present day, we've got 33 medical states, 11 adult use states. I would suggest the tipping point came first in 2012 when Colorado and Washington decided to legalize adult use. So yes, many states, I think 20 some odd uh, states had medical by then, but to, to take that forward looking step and say, we're going to have this as a recreational product. And then fast forward to 2019, where nearly 20 states legalized medical and recreational. And there's now been this tipping point. And after next week, we may have five more states, which would put us at 38 states that have legal cannabis. And the question for any politician at any level is simply, well, if this is something my constituents want, why am I going to be opposed to it if I want their vote? And there's just this groundswell that has been building up over time with recreational markets coming online and this acknowledgement by many members of Congress that while they may not have voted for it, and many of them didn't, particularly on the Republican side, like Cory Gardner right here in Colorado, they do acknowledge that this is important to their state. And another very interesting piece of the cannabis conversation is how it's legalized. You have individuals who do ballot measures and they end up putting cannabis in the constitution like we have here in Colorado. Well, interestingly enough, Republicans will say to me as I speak to them about cannabis, well, we can't really defend ourselves with the second amendment in the constitution and then deny cannabis, can we? Because it's all about the constitution for us. So not only are they supportive, but they're leading the charge because it's cloaked in the state constitution. And those are conversations that we've had in Washington. And I do think we're at a tipping point, uh, certainly in the next Congress. And I know we'll talk a little bit about the scenarios and what that might look like after next week. But cannabis is becoming normalized. It's becoming socialized. It's being put in the categories of alcohol and tobacco. And this is just another third bucket of things that folks can use uh, should they desire for medical or adult use. Yeah, and I mean, we're, we're, we're seeing, seeing it, uh, you know, cannabis, cannabis dispensaries being allowed to remain open during during COVID as essential business. Obviously, sales are going up. Uh, it clearly poised to do well uh, in a post-COVID type economy. And, and you know, but you, you mentioned scenarios. 
And there's there, obviously there's a number of them. I mean, there's a lot of people who are hearing even on the show a little bit, you know, expecting maybe a democratic sweep. Uh, you know, obviously we we could just we could see this the Senate flip. We could see, you know, maybe I don't know. We could talk about this. Do the Republicans surprise the heck out of us, and and do the Democrats lose control of of Congress? I, you know, I, I guess the best situation for the cannabis industry really is a Democratic sweep. So, you know, David, why don't you, you know, speak to that a little bit? How how, how would you see what would it mean if the Democrats flip the Senate, take the White House, keep control of the House? Yeah, good question, Jason. I, I think of all the scenarios, uh, as you said, uh, in my mind, this is by far the best uh, for the cannabis industry. Um, and I think that I should qualify that by saying that no matter what happens on election day, um, and no matter what the makeup of Congress is and, the, and who's in the White House next year, the momentum behind cannabis is going to continue. Uh, I've, I've been uh, at this for almost two years with Canopy Growth, and uh, the amount of momentum uh, has been staggering. Uh, that I've seen. And uh, I don't know that we're necessarily pushing the ball down the hill, but we could get to that point early next year. So let's think about this, uh, if it is a dim sweep in two ways. First of all, if Biden Harris are in the White House, um, the political rhetoric that you've heard out of the campaign thus far has been around executive orders and decriminalization and also rescheduling. So we've never seen anything in writing in particular. We don't know exactly what those executive orders would look like. And the proof, of course, will be in the pudding there in terms of what exactly does that mean? We know generally what both of them would mean, but we'll need to see something in writing if that's in fact the course uh, that they go down. Now, they're going to be uh, very focused right at the beginning on COVID and it's going to suck all the political oxygen out of the room. And the bigger question in my mind related to the cannabis and other issues that they wanna tackle is how much can they do um, in that first 100 days that's non-COVID related. But let's assume that they do act relatively quickly on this um, and that we would need to, we would see those two executive actions uh, early next year. The, the bigger question though, in my mind is that, you know, we're in the political silly season right now and does that position that they have currently stick? Um, I know that there's a number of us in the cannabis industry that will continue to chat with uh, the Biden-Harris campaign. Uh, and talk to them about policy and whether it makes sense to reschedule cannabis uh, or to take it off altogether if they'd be willing to go that far post the election. Uh, so those are those are some things to watch this fall um, and obviously pay very close attention to the rhetoric. But uh, from what we know thus far, those two um, executive orders could be the action out of the White House. The second and parallel track uh, is action on Capitol Hill. So if we have uh, Nancy Pelosi leading the House and Senator Schumer leading the Senate. We know that cannabis uh, legislation is going to move through regular order. And by that, I mean that it's gonna go through, it'll be reintroduced in both houses. Um, there'll be a number of bills, but most likely in my mind, the focus for next year is gonna be um, prominently on the MORE Act uh, and the 2.0 version of said bill. Um, but I do think that um, the legislation will be reintroduced. It'll go through the committee process um, and then it's a question of whether or not it has to get over the filibuster in the Senate or not. So if it has to hit that 60 vote threshold, uh, then this becomes a much harder exercise to get it through Congress. If it doesn't, if the Democrats remove the filibuster, which they haven't shut the door on doing, um, then we could see this thing sail through a bit easier because it would be a matter of picking off uh, more moderate um, 
Democrats that are questionable on cannabis versus trying to find another 10 um, more moderate Republicans to get it through. And then final point I'll make is that uh, this, the big question that of course would be if Congress does act, act on a full um, descheduling package, what does the Biden-Harris uh, team do? Do they sign it? Uh, do they not? Uh, that's kind of the million dollar question in my mind. We just don't know. Um, but I will say that having Senator Harris uh, as a part of that ticket, she's the sponsor of the MORE Act. Um, I do think that there's a lot of parallels here from 2008 uh, in the marriage equality issue with Obama and uh, oddly enough, uh, then Senator Biden, who was very, very pro marriage equality. And we all know how that one played out. We could have the same situation with Harris and Biden going into next year once elected, but we'll have to wait and see. So, so Melissa, like, what, what happens in a status quo situation? I mean, you know, Trump, Trump stays in the White House. You know, McConnell's controlling the Senate. Where, where, what happens in, 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 in that outcome? So I think you'll continue to see Pelosi and her House team push the issue. The Republicans in the Senate have consistently said we need this to be a House issue and then we can negotiate the details of it. Uh, I don't expect that that would change. And I'll get to why in a second when we talk about Senator McConnell. But in terms of the House, I think Pelosi and Senator uh, Representative Perlmutter would put together the safe banking bill again. They would probably combine it with the MORE Act and work with Chairman Nadler and his team. Uh, there's no doubt there would be some social equity language uh, very front and center on that legislation. Okay, so they pass an, an omnibus or a comprehensive cannabis bill. It comes over to the Senate. And the question is, does it, does it hit with a big thud as it has over the last several years? And I think now uh, in a new environment with Trump having been reelected, that might actually get some traction. And there's a couple of reasons why I think that. Um, members are no longer up for re-election that are in uh, very difficult races. They have a little more leeway, right? So they have six years before the re-election to make nice with voters at home, assuming voters at home are opposed to cannabis. Based on our earlier conversation about potentially 38 states that are legal, I think the senators have a little more room now to say, I may not agree with this issue, but it is now legal and I have to honor my voter intent. Uh, then you get to the president and he's a lame duck now. And there's a lot of appetite for the president to move forward on the States Act. He said it publicly. He said he would sign it if it got to his desk. And that's what we've been working on for the last several months and years. The concern there for him right now is, of course, evangelical voters and how do they feel about cannabis. And the last thing he can do is erode that base, knowing how much, as we previously discussed, he needs those voters to turn out right now. So in a lame duck scenario, I think the president has more room. His closest advisors, including Ivanka and Jared, have had very meaningful dialogue with the industry about this issue. So I think there is a path forward. And back to McConnell for one final second. You know, you talked about the banking uh, efforts on hemp and how hemp is a priority for, for Kentucky. The problem is McConnell, there's not a, a cannabis is not a priority for Kentucky yet. We're hoping that will be a factor in the coming years. Um, but McConnell is really a bubble up leader. And what I mean by that is he doesn't say to his uh, Republican conference, here's what we will and will not do. What he says is, if you have a critical mass of an issue that this is important to you in your home states, you come to me and we'll find a way to make it work for the collective good for the majority of the conference. But the last thing he'll do is put his members on record on an issue that might only matter to one or two senators. So this all goes back to this grassroots effort, this groundswell to get enough senators interested to go to Senator McConnell as the leader and ask for some some room on the issue. So, Eric, think, think about, you know, Biden-Harris victory. 
but the Democrats can't flip the Senate. How much friction can be caused? What, like, how is that going to change the, the, the analysis of these outcomes? Uh, let me first say that, that uh, Senator Harris's remarks in the VP debate um, were a sea change for the Biden uh, for, for the Biden campaign, and uh, her remarks, her ability to make those remarks, um, they move from sort of her her personal beliefs to the official position of the campaign uh, were the result of a lot of work by the cannabis industry and outreach by the cannabis industry, including a number of folks on, the, on this call, most notably David Culver. Um, you know, I believe that, that she could not have made those remarks with it, with, without, that, without that outreach. Uh, so we've seen this campaign move, and I think it will continue to move. I think President Biden, if elected, would sign any piece of cannabis legislation that comes his way, whether that's the Moore Act, whether that's the States Act, or whether that's safe banking, or some sort of um, cannabis omnibus, um, cannabis omnibus, if you will, uh, that, that, that could come his way. Um, will it get through the Senate? Uh, as, as Melissa rightly pointed out, um, uh, Speaker Pelosi, and there's zero chance that the Democrats will lose the House. Let's just, you know, they will all, in all likelihood probably lose five seats in, in, in places that they shouldn't have won and then probably pick up five or 10 more. So it'll be about a wash, but they may actually gain seats. Um, so Speaker Pelosi, and she will be Speaker Pelosi, will continue to move uh, this this legislation. Um, I, and then the, the, if, if it comes to the president's desk, President Biden will, will, will sign it. So the question then becomes, can you get it through the, 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 the Senate? And uh, Melissa sort of just sort of outlined what will likely happen on, on the Republican side on the Senate. Um, if there is intransigence, intransigence and um, this continues to be a political winner, for, um, for, for Democrats, then uh, to David's point, you could see some executive actions by the, um, by the Biden administration where they deschedule. And I view all of this, any one of these actions, whether it's safe banking or the more act, it's sort of like the day the Berlin Wall fell in cannabis because shortly thereafter, that one event meant that Czechoslovakia fell. It meant that all of the dominoes, if you will, in, in the, toppled. So any one of these trigger events, even through executive action, I think will completely open open this up um, uh, for, 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 for the industry, which is exciting. It is it is incredibly exciting. And and you know again, fascinating to, to see how this all comes into play. But you know, I, I we have to keep in the back of our mind, and I want Patrick to speak to this a little bit, is 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 you know sure as many of us are of, of democratic uh, democrat victory. I mean, what happens in the other scenario where, you know, Republican state, let's, let's assume that it's, stat, it's not even status quo. Let's assume that, that Senate remains Republican controlled, Trump stays in the White House, and, you know, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe the House flips and ends up under Republican control. Like, Patrick, you know, what are your thoughts on that? What would that mean for the cannabis industry if it went that way? Yeah, well, I think the scenario, Jason, that that we had uh, that we discussed, I call it the the least likely scenario, uh, at least in my view. Well, the least likely scenario, I think, would be the Republicans take back the House. But the second uh, least likely scenario, in my view, would be President Trump is reelected, but the Democrats flip the Senate, and I it would go against everything I know about politics for that to happen. But I spent a little time how it would work. And uh, I'll just propose this as, as a potential scenario. Rules are being broken in politics all the time. So as sure as I am that it won't happen, you never know. But in 2016, the Republicans were able to maintain their Senate majority, primarily because President Trump helped pull 
a lot of their incumbents across the finish line in states that were really competitive at the presidential level. What's a little different in 2020 is you have some Senate races taking place in swing states, but not nearly as many as there were in 2016. So this type of scenario where the Democrats control both houses of Congress and Trump gets reelected, you would have to have a certain type of situation where the Democrats gain the majority through these competitive, really well-funded Senate races in Arizona, North Carolina, Colorado, you know, maybe even Montana, but that in the swing states that don't have competitive Senate races to the table, and that's like a Florida, Pennsylvania, you know, maybe the uh, Republican Senate candidate in Michigan does really well, um, or Peters pulls it out, Wisconsin, Nevada, states like that. And there, there could, there would just have to be sort of an alignment, but in that situation, would present a really complicated political dynamic where you would have to balance a Democratic-controlled Congress who is going to have a really disappointed base of their party that the president was reelected, but also the opportunity that you have a very ideological, uh, ideologically flexible president, uh, and is there the potential to get things done uh, without him, him having to worry about running for... could see some real back and forth on... What can we attach safe banking to that we would just force them to sign, uh, you know, and some things like that. The two things I'll add to, to Melissa's comments are one, you know, President Trump has said he'll sign things and won't sign things all the time and then changes his mind. It's really hard to know sort of what he'll ultimately do at the end of the day. I worry a little bit about his interest in signing cannabis legislation without any political upside, given that he's already been reelected. And the other thing is, Melissa pointed out correctly, there are some really important advisors around him who I think would support uh, making progress on this issue. There is one very important advisor with a personal vested interest that he doesn't do anything, and that would be Vice President Mike Pence. He needs that evangelical support. He absolutely wants to run for president in 2024. And you could see him going to the president and saying, you cannot do this to me. I cannot have this administration stamping support on cannabis when I'm going to be seeking the support of evangelicals in the 2024 primary. And you'd have powerful voices on both sides weighing in with him. And then it's just like it is uh, every other day in Washington right now. It's trying to get into Donald Trump's head to figure out what he's going to do. And I don't I don't think I'm going to go there. I'll leave that to others. <laughs> so uh, let's assume we have a lame duck session coming our way. And, you know, we obviously have a, a number of bills that, that are that are out there right now. So, you know, Eric, assuming a lame duck session, do we see any progress? I mean, I, I, you know, maybe it's a safe banking act that, that can get some traction. How do you what do you see happening in the first few months, um, you know, post-election? Well, I think that um, it depends on the election results, right, and in the shape and the contours of uh, of a lame duck package, uh, particularly if it's a stimulus relief package, uh, are going to be governed by the the outcome of the election. In other words, if if the Democrats sweep. Um, Leader McConnell will want to get as much into this package as he can because he knows that he'll be coming out of the majority in January. Um, if he holds on to the Senate, uh, he'll have more leverage, certainly, uh, and they, they might uh, come to some sort of uh, conclusion. So I think it depends on the parameters of this. Assuming that it's a, a small, um, let's fix PPP, let's do some funding around uh, state and local, and a couple of the other things that, that we want to do, um, extend unemployment benefits up to you know, $400 or $500 a week. Uh, 
that's a skinny package that sails through without without any of this. If it's a much larger package in the uh, in the lame duck, that's where you could see some pressure from uh, Speaker Pelosi, uh, who could be newly empowered and certainly a uh, uh, minority leader, currently minority leader Schumer, to say, hey, um, we've had safe banking uh, pass. The, the, the House of Representatives, you know, let, let's, it's, it's part of the um, HEROES Act. So let's just include that in this package. There is no real natural um, constituency on, on the other side. This is going to grow jobs, not only uh, in large cities, but throughout America in communities, large and, and, and small, urban and rural, and, and they, could, they, could, um, they could push that. So I think it remains to be seen. At the same time, um, you're going to have progressives and a lot of Democrats say that no matter what passes, in the lame duck or thereafter, you've got to have a social justice component to, 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 to this. If you do not have social justice, we simply aren't tackling this in the right way. And you've heard me say this before, but, but we have 8 million people who are in prison right now for, for cannabis offenses. We arrest somebody every 17 seconds in this country for, for cannabis. Black Americans are four times more likely to, to be arrested for cannabis. Our cannabis policies historically through 1971 and, and, and rescheduling were designed to put black and brown men into cages. So moving forward on any aspect of this, we'll have to have social justice, uh, whether that's in the lame duck or, or next year. Well, and obviously the, the MORE Act speaks to that directly. And, and uh, but obviously we didn't have any movement on it this year and we've pushed it back. You know, David, where do you see the MORE Act going? I mean, is, is that gonna, is it gonna come back in its current form? Is it is there going to be modifications? Like, how's this all play out? Yeah, let me. I'm going to get to the more out in a, in a second. I want to just add one other comment about the Safe Banking Act, which is I agree with everything Eric said. I think that that is uh, very possible that we see uh, legitimate action in both houses on safe banking in the lame duck period, um, primarily because it's been endorsed by so many groups across the country, uh, and also because it's this is a health issue now. So you have all of these dispensaries, which have been deemed essential, that are dealing with cash money all day long, every day. Uh, that's a problem, and that's that's got to stop. So uh, I, I do think that access to the banks is really critical from a public health perspective. Now, onto the MORE Act. Uh, first of all, in terms of the lame duck, um, leadership in the House of Representatives has made an ironclad promise uh, to bill, the bill sponsors that they are going to vote on the MORE Act uh, this fall. We don't know exactly when. Uh, and of course, as Eric alluded to earlier, the election impacts could have, uh, could potentially impact this, this more act vote. Um, but it was pulled prior to the election. There was some uh, nervous members inside of the caucus about voting on this bill prior to the election. So they pulled it, they promised to do it in the lame duck. I do think that we will see this historic vote, um, uh, come in November or December before they adjourn for the year. I don't think that that, uh, that the bill as it was introduced in April of, of 19 is going to change very much, Jason. Uh, I think it's going to be relatively the same package uh, as, as was introduced um, and as um, members of Congress have co-sponsored. But going into 2021, I think that the, I'm going to call it the MORE Act 2.0. I don't know exactly what it would be titled, but I think it's going to be different. Um, first of all, you've got, uh, you're going to have a very, very loud group from the left, especially if it is a Dem sweep. Um, either way, though, you're going to have a, a very loud voice from the left. 
Uh, and there's going to be a lot of incumbents on the Hill that are looking to embrace the cannabis issue, especially those that are in the Senate and up for re-election in 2022. So I'll let you go back and do your homework on that one. But there's a lot of powerful folks uh, in the Senate on the Dem side that are going to be looking for issues um, that will appease the left to make sure that they are not challenged from the left. And there's no better way to do that than cannabis. The second thing I'll say is that the MORE Act punted the entire regulatory structure for cannabis to the tobacco model. And I think in my mind, that's something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about and talking about. That's going to be the big change. So what does that regulatory structure look like inside that bill that's specific to cannabis? What's the tax structure look like that would allow for a transition from the illicit market into the legal market? So the burden isn't set too high at the beginning, but perhaps ramps itself up uh, over a period of time. How do you regulate medical cannabis versus recreational? So all of these questions, I think Hill leaders are starting to, um, to look at. And I think that when we see um, the, the MORE Act in 2021, it's going to have a new and robust regulatory structure. It's still gonna have all of the social equity provisions that Eric alluded to earlier. And I think if, if we do need a new Senate bill sponsor, if Senator Harris is vice, presidential, vice president elect, um, then I think you should look to that class of 2022 uh, and or other members that are concerned about um, their left flank. So that in a nutshell is, is kind of how I see the MORE Act uh, for next year. You, you know, you, you, you touched briefly on, on the regulatory aspect and, and there's been in the last few weeks, there's been a fair amount of discussion regarding the States Act actually maybe being the best path to regulation. You know, Melissa, you're, you're, in, you're in Colorado and obviously uh, been in the middle of this for almost the last decade. I, I, and what's your view with respect to the States Act? So I think the States Act is really quite gorgeous in its simplicity and essentially saying if cannabis is going to remain on the Schedule One list, but if you're in a state that has legalized cannabis, then the federal law and the punitive nature of, the, of remaining on Schedule One would not apply to you. And when you present that to a legislator, particularly in a Republican Senate, they are interested in hearing that conversation based on the 10th Amendment and states' rights. The concern with the States Act in the House, and I, I understand it and I hear it loud and clear, is there's not a, so, a social equity component. So the question lies, is there a trifecta possible between the States Act, the Safe Banking Act, and social equity language? And I think that is where many of us in the industry and in on the Hill are looking. You know, is there a global deal to be cut? If so, what does that look like? And I'll say Republicans are generally okay with a social equity or social justice component. What they are generally not okay with is expungement language where you're going back in time and changing previous marijuana con convictions. And they tend to give me the same response, which is, well, if the, speeding, uh, if the speed limit was 50 miles an hour 10 years ago and you got a ticket and now it's 65, are we gonna go back in time and give you a refund on that ticket and change your points? No, but we will look at it going forward. And that, whether it's good or bad, is the general law and order view of Republicans. So to the extent they're willing to entertain a cannabis bill, I do think there would be language similar to perhaps the First Step Act and looking at a Second Step Act, which I think is coming as well. And that would be led by the president. 
So could we perhaps include social justice language in the Second Step Act as, it's, as it relates to cannabis and then have a separate bill that deals with the mechanics, to David's point, of how is it going to be regulated? What are the banking guidelines going to be? Uh, what are the rules of engagement? Does it look more like alcohol or tobacco or something altogether different? So there may be a hybrid of a couple bills, although I think an omnibus for those of us in the lobby corps would be a much better uh, way to do it. But I think the States Act for people, for even on the Democratic side who don't necessarily like cannabis, and many of them don't, I think that's one of the misconceptions is that all Democrats like cannabis and they're supportive of it. There are many Democrats I've talked to who have family reasons and personal stories that are very sad and tragic and they want nothing to do with legalizing cannabis. So it's a matter of finding a reasonable path, not necessarily a partisan path. And the thing that I've learned the most over the last decade or so is that this is really not a partisan issue. It appears to be, but uh, the more you dissect it and the more you talk about it, it's actually quite bipartisan. It, 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 it's so many, it, it's amazing, right? I mean, we have all these different pieces of potential legislation to come and play in so many steps. I mean, even post, you know, just to get in the regulatory structure, right? Absolutely fascinating how, you know, this, this is going to work. Uh, yeah. 2021 is going to be a banner year. But the one thing we do seem to know for sure, and you mentioned it earlier, Melissa, briefly, is that we're going to see quite likely or quite, you know, quite potentially five more states legalizing. So we have five ballot initiatives this year. David, do you want to touch on those states and what's happening there? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, I like to think about, let's see, five, let me rattle them off uh, for the, the listeners. Uh, Arizona, South Dakota, Montana, uh, New Jersey, uh, in Mississippi. Um, and there was a lot more that were under consideration at the beginning of this year. COVID got in the way uh, of some of them. But fast forward to a week before the election, and now we have these five states, which are fabulous. Uh, but we also have a number of states that their governors have come out publicly and been very vocal about the fact that they would like their state to act as well. Um, there's been a number of, of reasons, but the, the primary driver, of course, is the giant budget gaps uh, that states are facing. So the way that I like to think about um, these five ballot initiatives, and they are critically important, and hats off to all of those that are working in those five states, uh, especially our friends at the Marijuana Policy Project. They've done a really good job uh, on all of these thus far. Uh, and I think that um, the numbers that I received this week are all looking good. Um, but there are four, four main things in my mind when I think about these. Number one is normalcy. So Melissa alluded to this earlier in her comments. Uh, the more states that legalize, whether medical or recreational, the more normalized cannabis becomes. Uh, number two um, is going to be the economic impact that I alluded to earlier. So states are looking for jobs. They're looking to fill their tax coffers, which have been devastated because of the pandemic. Uh, and these are real discussions that they're having inside of state capitals about how do they do it. And cannabis could be a brand new industry for their state and could generate uh, an amazing amount of positive economic impact, uh, which the state is going to want to capture because we don't obviously have interstate commerce at the moment. And if you do legalize in some way, shape or form, your state capitalizes on every aspect of it. Uh, number three is the impact on federally elected officials, right? So if a state that has two Republican senators uh, is to legalize, then like South Dakota, um, I'll pick on them, then those, Melissa alluded to this earlier, those, those members in the Senate are gonna have to scratch their heads and think about their policy position uh, because it, it's gonna be important that it somewhat mirrors what their public wants, what their constituents want. 
Um, and then the, the, the final thing is the regional impact. Uh, and we may want to get into more discussion on this with the other panelists, but if you think about a state like New Jersey, which is population heavy, which is surrounded by New York and Pennsylvania, also population heavy, um, if New Jersey does legalize when I think they're going to, then what does New York do? What does Pennsylvania do? And you've heard the Pennsylvania governor and lieutenant governor very vocally calling for a legislative solution to this before the end of the year um, and or next year. You've also heard just uh, this week, Governor Cuomo come out saying we are going to legalize next year. Uh, and they, they need to do that because they need to fill their tax coffers and they need to get the jobs and they don't want their neighboring state of New Jersey to reap the benefits of this. So that in a nutshell um, is, is how I think about it. Um, and I think that I, I mentioned earlier that the momentum is gonna continue in the cannabis space uh, next year, no matter what happens on Tuesday, next Tuesday. Uh, and a lot of the reason I say that is that we are gonna see more and more states, whether through ballot initiatives or through legislative action, look at cannabis very, very seriously next year. So, yeah, I mean, you mentioned Pennsylvania and Governor Wolf. He's been very vocal and, and very critical. You know, it, like, like Patrick, I mean, I got to believe if New Jersey, obviously, that initiative moves ahead, that Pennsylvania moves to legalize this year as well. Like, what would that look like? What would that mean? Yeah, I mean, there is a, you know, a real possibility uh, that that adult use can get done in the lame duck in the, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. But the, the real issue is the Republicans just aren't quite there yet. Um, and it may be that we're looking to next year uh, for, for a better opportunity for, for this to happen in Pennsylvania. The, the electorate is certainly very, very popular, uh, both the medical program and the prospect of adult use. Um, and also the budget uh, shortfall that, that David mentioned as a result of COVID uh, localities, uh, municipalities, states are cash strapped and they are desperately trying uh, to find ways to, to fill that that budget hole. Um, but to your point, Jason, uh, you know, each of these states regionally getting closer uh, makes it much more likely that everyone's going to kind of tiptoe up to the finish line. I mean, right now, it's like all three of these states all want to ask the same girl to prom and, and neither of them are just willing to kind of take that final step and do it. And I can uh, speak from the experience here in Illinois, that a factor that really, really helped uh, in our, our uh, legislative debate and ultimate passage was the fact that Michigan had this on the ballot. And so you had a state regionally close by that wasn't just saying, we're going to legalize it all use for the legislature. They have a Republican legislature. That wasn't really uh, an option. But because it was on the ballot, you know, folks here knew there's going to be a set date that we're going to know if this is going to be legal uh, in the state of Michigan. And ultimately, it, it did pass. So amongst all the other factors uh, that, that helped it along, you know, that was that was a big one. And my evidence would be, you know, Illinois is a Democratic governor, uh, overwhelmingly Democratic legislature, but so does New York. So the fact that there hasn't been sort of a forcing action from another state in the region, I think has made it possible to Block it a little bit for for all the reasons we've all followed in these states. Melissa, I want to ask you. You're in Colorado. Can we look at Colorado as as, as I mean, obviously, one heck of a model. When we're speaking specifically, I mean, not just revenues. Can you walk us through what's happened from sales, from revenues, what that's meant to communities, and what is the what's the reaction been since? I mean, what what has you know how how has this been perceived years later? What what's Talk to us a little bit about it. Yeah, so what's happening in Colorado? Happy to share that. So when adult use was on the ballot in 2012, 
Uh, nobody thought it would pass, including the governor, including the attorney general, including a lot of observers, including myself, who've watched polling and and watched uh, campaign events here for a long time. Uh, it passed and it got more votes than Obama in 2012. And the next day after the election, we all looked around and thought, oh, OK, well, I guess we have to do something about cannabis. So Governor John Hickenlooper at the time put together a, a commission of people, quite frankly, that he trusted from across all levels of government and private sector uh, to really literally write the first cannabis laws in the country. So that entire year of 2013 was our legislative session dealing with the implementing bill. Um, and the legislation included uh, certainly a state tax that would have to go to our voters based on the way uh, we have something here called TABOR, Taxpayer Bill of Rights, where voters have to approve all tax increases, even if they already approved the underlying tax measure. So we passed the legislation through the legislature in 2013, put it on the ballot in 2013, had the taxation approved, which allows for a state sales tax and wholesale tax and gave local governments the discretion to either opt in or not to cannabis and either to tax or not based on the voter approval in 2013. So fast forward to January 1st of 2014, we go live. You saw the, the lines on the news of people waiting to buy the first legal cannabis, probably after years of buying illegal cannabis. So it was a big day. And from that point forward, I will tell you the sky has not fallen here. And a lot of people thought that it might, that what were we doing? What, what, what would this mean for kids? A lot of the studies and uh, a big one called the Healthy Kids Survey that the state Colorado Department of Public Health does every year uh, has come out and essentially said, teen use is not up with regard to legal, with regard to cannabis. It in fact remains flat, if not down after legalization. So the public service announcements are working. The education is working. The dissection of medical use for cannabis from adult use is working, and there's a lot of public relations and PR campaigns by the state around those two issues. So at the end of the day, let's talk money, right? What is this done for Colorado? Well, I can give you some COVID-related uh, information. The pandemic has been very good for the cannabis industry here. When you tell people they can't leave their house, they buy alcohol and they buy cannabis. In June, I'm sorry, in May of this year, we had a record-setting month at $149 million in sales. That was big news. Well, only to be followed by June, where we had $158 million in sales. And that's because cannabis is allowed to be delivered now as a, as a uh, condition of the pandemic and the shelter-in-place orders. Under a bill passed last year, you can deliver medical, but you couldn't deliver adult use. And we were able to find a way to have delivery for both. What does this mean overall? In the last six and a half years, the state of Colorado has collected $1.5 billion in sales tax as a result of cannabis being legal. And those numbers are only going to continue. And of course, that includes licensing fees and other things. But the majority of that is sales tax. Uh, so to David's point, to states and cities and counties that are looking for revenue, uh, yes, there is a cost of doing business. You've got to have money to set up the ultimate regulatory structure. But after that, you can find ways uh, to pave your roads and to do a lot of things. Ironically, here in Colorado, the first 40 million of the cannabis dollars that come in every year go to capital construction for K-12 schools. And that was in our ballot measure. So there's a lot of ways to, to dovetail these dollars and to find ways to really fix the holes that cities and counties and states had before the pandemic, but certainly have now. Yeah, and, and every state obviously is taking a different approach. I mean, you, you know, from See, seeing what's happened in Illinois versus California versus Florida. I mean, different types of markets from open, open markets to limited license markets. I mean, it, it, it's, you know, it, it sounds like it's been overall, regardless of model, it's been a positive experience, re regardless of where we've had legalization. 
Um, you know, we should, at this point, we should probably move to kind of, I guess, final thoughts, final remarks. What we want to do is the end of our of our of our Voice of Cannabis series was to give everyone an opportunity, kind of 60 seconds, maybe just give us final thoughts on where the industry stands, how that ties in with the election, what we can expect in 2020 and 2020, 2021 going forward. I mean, from from my perspective, you know, uh, 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 and maybe David, you can lead off, but but uh, a lot of it will have to tie into, you know, kind of industry unity. I mean, there's there's no question that genie's out of the bottle. And we have state-by-state state legalization. Uh, sounds like we're going to be, you know, quite possibly 40 states if we look at the ballot initiatives and, and some legislative states that might, might uh, um, legalize through a legislative process. Clearly, there's a demand. Sales are growing in virtually every jurisdiction. The tax revenues are there. Uh, you know, but but you know, I, I still look back at the at the farm bill and what people thought that that would do for the CBD slash hemp industry, and you know, it, it's 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 you know, going back a, a, a few weeks ago to what Axel Burnaby was saying from New York is that you know we still have all these interstate commerce issues. I mean, we don't have a you know there's there, there's this conflicts between the DEA, USDA, FDA. I, I you know the industry together has to really figure out how. To, to make proper regulatory change. So this does become a true industry. And uh, you know, so that's what we're hoping to see. Legalization or criminalization, huge part of that election obviously is gonna determine, outcome is gonna determine how that happens. But I, I really feel like it's gonna be up to the cannabis industry itself to have the, the biggest industry partners really make sure that we get regulation in place to make this truly scalable while addressing all the social justice issues. That's what I'm excited to see, is that how we, how we can solve, check all these boxes and, and make this work. You know, David, why don't we kick it over to you? Maybe we can follow up with Eric, um, you know, uh, Patrick, and then uh, Melissa, if you don't mind, uh, wrapping up the closeout. And uh, we're not gonna have Q&A today, so I'll just leave it to you four to give us your final 60 seconds or so each. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us. And, Thanks to our, to our, to our uh, panelists here. I'll turn it over to you, David. Thank you, Jason. Um, well, first and foremost, I, I just wanted to thank Melissa for joining us. Uh, you were an excellent panelist and uh, we certainly hope that you will uh, join us again at some point in the future. Um, but thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, Jason, look, you, you, I may be the most boring commentary on this uh, particular wrap-up session, but I'm gonna beat the same drum I always beat and you summed it up quite nicely, which is number one, we must be unified as an industry going into 2021. We have got to find alliance amongst everybody that's out there uh, so that we can march in lockstep to get something done. I spent 16 years in the beverage alcohol industry. When we were not aligned as an industry, we failed, period. When we were aligned, we won. And there were some really major pieces of legislation in the states and also on the federal level that we were able to accomplish as a result of that unity. So that's number one. Number two, to the regulatory structure. Again, we've got to get figured out on the federal level if we, in advance of legalization, in advance of cannabis being descheduled, what does that regulatory structure look like? And what is specific to cannabis? What model is specific to cannabis that actually works? So all of the big brains in the cannabis space are working on this right now, including those folks that are on this panel right now and leaders on the Hill. Uh, but we've got to get that right going into 2021. Otherwise, it's going to be a mess when we do legalize. And like my good friends in the beverage alcohol industry, we're going to spend the rest of our careers cleaning up a mess that we made 
prior to legalization. So those are my two comments. And, and thanks so much again to you and your team uh, and the folks from SALT for having me today. Thanks, Dave. It's, it's been a pleasure, absolute pleasure working with you throughout this series. Eric. Uh, I would say uh, I've got two messages, one to voters and one to policymakers. The message to voters uh, is vote. You must get out and vote if you care about this issue um, in conjunction with other issues that are important to you. You've got to make your voice heard. Um, we're getting up to the point where you can mail in your ballots, but uh, go down and vote in person where you've got early voting. Vote, vote in person where on election day you have to vote. This is this is exceedingly important generally, but particularly as it relates to, 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 to this industry. And then uh, my message to policymakers is a friend in uh, friend in weed is a friend indeed, which is to say this is a political winner, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. Cannabis is going to be good for your district in terms of jobs and economic development. So it's time to put away the vestiges um, on both sides of the aisle and embrace the fact that we're past the tipping point and, and, and we are here. This is the future. It's time to catch up. Awesome. Thanks, thanks Eric. Thanks a ton. Pa Patrick, are you back? I'm here and uh, my final sort of thought uh, on all of this is trying to look ahead uh, to what happens after the election. And one of the scenarios we discussed, uh, which is if it turns out that it's a great democratic year and Democrats end up in control of everything, um, you know, there is going to be a view, I think, amongst the activist community and among voters that there is gonna be sweeping immediate change on cannabis. And I think all of us who have spent time working in government and politics knows that it almost never works that way. And that there is going to be, uh, you know, some time that is gonna to have to go by before uh, we start to see the change that I know all of us wanna see. Um, you're gonna have uh, a new Congress and president potentially, uh, you know, of the same party dealing with responding to the pandemic. Uh, it's very possible that the U.S. Supreme Court strikes down the Affordable Care Act, in which there would have to be a massive legislative response to shore up the nation's healthcare system. And while I think that you will see positive movement on cannabis, it's not going to be like a light switch on day one if Democrats control Washington. And so I would urge all of those who care about this issue to make your voices heard, to continue to push elected officials to act uh, and to be responsive, but to also... Uh, understand that governing uh, sometimes doesn't happen as quickly as we would all like, um, but hopefully through the work of David and others in the industry, that will result in a thoughtful approach to legalization and a federal regulatory structure that works not just for all of us uh, right now, but for generations uh, to come. Now, fully agreed and, and, and well said, it's definitely not going to be a light switch. This is just the beginning of a, of a very fun kind of time ahead with lots of change to, to happen. Um, we'll, we'll wrap it up with Melissa. Again, thanks, Melissa. I know we, we got you on here in short notice, but it's been really great to hear what you have to say and get your perspective. So we, we, we'd love to hear your wrap up. It's been my pleasure, Jason. And thank you so much to you and Salt uh, and David for the invitation. So a couple thoughts. I mean, we've talked about how cannabis is here to stay. And I think this is no longer a flash in the pan that certain states have legalized. This is definitely coming and it's coming right for Washington. And Washington's going to have to figure out how to talk about cannabis, particularly members who don't like it, don't know how to talk about it, don't have it in their state, which is where we as lobbyists and we as companies can come in as that resource and say, you don't have to like it. We just have to help you understand it. 
And there's a huge educational point that has been happening. I can tell you even five years ago, I would call certain members moderate Republicans who wouldn't even give me a meeting on cannabis. Now they're calling me asking for a briefing for their staff. So things have changed. They want to be educated. They want to understand. They all caveat with, I don't want to be the lead, but I do want to know how to talk about it. And I do want to know where this ship is going. So I think we are very much at that tipping point. And certainly what happens in the next week in the election will inform that. It's not just about cannabis, though. It's about other industries that are looking at cannabis and wondering what it means for them, including alcohol, including tobacco, including pharmaceutical, including pharmacies who might be interested in dispensing medical marijuana products. I I can't tell you how many phone calls I've gotten over the last seven to 10 years saying, hey, can you fill me in on what you know about cannabis? Where's the industry going for my other particular industry that that these folks are talking about? So this is a big deal. Uh, I think the world is watching. It's very exciting. I've never worked on a public policy issue as dynamic and exciting as cannabis legalization, and it's going to be here for a long time. Thank you so much again for having me, and I really appreciated everyone's time and my very talented panelists today. Awesome. Thank, thanks, Melissa. And, and thanks, Salt. And thanks, everyone, for joining us today. We look forward to seeing what the election, the end of 2020 and 2021 brings. Thanks again. 